You got it, Numbers 13? Okay, look up if you got it. Let me set this up, okay? We have, uh, we have limited opportunities to make what we think are significant connecting points to a place we want to go as, as the people of God. And so we started reminding ourselves in this picture of this stone of remembrance um, that God is faithful to us and that God loves us. And those two things, he's faithful to his word, his promises, and his love is just spilling over the edges, amazing. That that winsome, magnetic, irresistible love is what compels God's people, God's people to pursue him, to love him and want him. And so today is gonna be sort of like a coaching moment. And I'm not certain I'll do this well, but I trust the Holy Spirit. He's a better teacher than I am, and I know he's here. So he's gonna take these words, he's gonna formulate a thought with you and your personality involved in it. And maybe God will make a mark. Remember we said that yesterday? We pray that God would leave a mark on us, so maybe this will be the mark. Um, so there's a, there's a direction I wanna go tonight with those amazing things of God in mind. I wanna put us in the story now and consider ourselves when it's all done. Not I'm 22, I'm 25, I'm just getting started. I'm wrapping it up kind of a person. I'm like your folks, your grand folks, you know, those people when they've just got like nothing to do in your mind's eye. Like what does it look like to have your perspective on the faithfulness and the love of God hang in there for decades so that when it's all said and done, the vibrancy of your faith and affections haven't diminished, but they've actually grown. Like you can be around people, man, I just want to hang with them. I just want to be with them. Just say anything because it's good for my soul. That kind of a person. Um, because, and I don't want to, I'm not saying anything you don't know. It is so trendy to, to melt, to just be there one day and not be there the next. To think of things important one day and change the rules the next. And it's almost like our world is just this waffling, uncertain kind of a place, you know? Do you remember when? I, I, this is very interesting. This just popped in my head. So I came to Arizona 20 years ago this month. I mean, it was like 10 days ago, 20 years ago. Did that make any mathematical sense, what I just said? <laughs> so you get what I'm trying to say, right? 20 years ago, 10 days ago. And so I was in the back of the worship center on Sunday at Gilbert, and I was praying with the elders before the service. And Justin Marshall, whom some of you know, came to the back and he says, hey, there's a pastor out there um, who used to be the pastor of your church back in Chicago, and he's here. Well, I haven't seen this dude in 20 years. I haven't said anything to him. And I sat down with him that afternoon for four hours um, talking, and all we did for four hours was do the where are they now? You know, we scrolled through the mental library of people and personalities, folks that were important, folks that somebody knew, they mattered, they were in the system, all in the context of church and ministry and, and what we did. And we just kind of went through this list randomly. And, well, that guy, he's, he's gone. Oh, that guy, well, he's no more. That guy, he, he left his family. Well, that guy, and the story was just like, can we just stop and drink coffee? Because I, I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear about these vaporized relationships. And it's true. It, it's just true. So I'm not telling you anything you're not familiar with. I'm certain you've experienced enough of it in your lifetime to know 
that is true. So what I'm going to try to do is through a narrative, a story of what I think is the most, one of the most impressive narratives in Scripture, at least it is to me, it's been always so motivational to me, is to leave a mark in you, on you, that you'll care more about what you're like 50 years from now than what you do right this moment. Like your desire to go all the way has just been heightened. That's the goal, okay? So if I hit it, it's by the grace of God and to the spirit uh, that is here teaching us. So Numbers 13 tells us that story. Let me give you some background before we read a lot of text and read a lot of, of this story together. Uh, I don't know how familiar you, are, familiar you are with the story of the Old Testament or God's people in it as God is weaving his narrative about his, him redeeming his people. But let me just jump kind of sort of in the one-third track of this story. Uh, God makes a promise. I mentioned to you yesterday about Abraham in his little covenant, right, with the sacrifice and the pieces and Abraham sleeping and God promising to himself. Do you remember that? Okay, you got to shake your head because this will have to be a short sermon if you forgot that. Um, so that's true. God keeps his promise. And here comes this, this people, this family, this generation of people. And there's there's these Israelites. Well, fast forward through a series of events. They end up in Egypt, and the Pharaoh at the time forgets everything about why they're there, and he, they become slaves in Egypt. So 400 years, they're trapped in this place, building cities for Pharaoh, and they're suffering, right? They're suffering for it, and they're crying out to God, God, you made promises us, to us as a people, and when will you rescue us? When you, will you deliver us? And God finally hears them and sends them a redeemer, again, another type in, in the man um, we know is, is Moses. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says over and over again, hey, you, you need to hear what I'm saying to you, God. These are God's people, you need to let them go. And Pharaoh wouldn't because he was selfish. He wanted his cities. And so eventually God brings plagues, multiple plagues, to try to convince Pharaoh that he is real and not to be messed with, okay? Ultimately, um, the last scene is the, the death angel that comes to kill the firstborn and God tells Moses, paint the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of every home and the angel of death will pass over. Now there's stories in there, gospel stories in there and I don't have time to stop and tell you that. But suddenly Pharaoh goes, oh, I, I'm done. Your God's way too powerful. Go, take your stuff. In fact, take our stuff and leave. And so they leave they leave Egypt, and they're on their way to this promise that God had made to Abraham, this fulfillment, not only a people, but a place. And they're in their desert. They're on their way. They're obeying, right? God's doing miraculous things. I don't have time to tell you about all, all of those. And they end up right on the doorstep. Like, in not too much time from the Exodus, they end up right at the doorstep of this place called Kadesh Barnea, which is going into this land, this promised land, okay? So that's all the, the buildup of, of this story, okay? And so at this, at this particular moment, um, they are facing decision time. And the decision is, is not so much uh, really, will we go take the land as much as will we trust God and obey God? Okay, so everyone likes to get. Why wouldn't Israel just want to get? Well, there's other things involved in this land, and it's called obedience. And so here's the story. Numbers 13, we're going to read just some random verses. I'll, I'll lead you through it, but let's start in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out this land of Canaan, which I'm giving, I am giving to the people of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, every one, a chief among them. So Moses sent from them, uh, them from the wilderness of Paran, 
according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. And he goes on and mentions a list of men, 12 men that represented their tribes, okay? Now skip to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or whether they're weak, whether they are few, whether they're many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or if it's bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in and the camps are strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, or whether there is trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time, has, uh, time was the season of the first ripe, ripe grapes. That is the commission. That is the action. Remember where they are, right on the threshold of God's promise. Go and look. That, that's the command. Now, scrolling in the sovereign mind of God is a perfect awareness of the condition of his people, which is true of all of us. Well, God knows that the people hadn't made a clean break yet. They, they, they spent all those hundreds of years whining and complaining about slavery in Egypt, but their hearts were still kind of tethered to their world in spite of the promise, and God knew that, that their old life was still kind of hanging in there. So God uh, commands Moses to send these leaders from every tribe to spy out the land. I call this group of leaders the people's choice. They, they got to leadership because they were recognized by their actions or their look or, or their gifts or whatever, And they're given just one simple directive. I mean, who couldn't get this command? Go and see. Confusing? All I want you to do is look. Tell me what it's like, is what Moses says. Job one was reconnaissance, not evaluation, not who's there, not can we take it, not is this a good idea, none of that. This is just go and look. That's the, that's the command. Let's pick up the story, verse 23 through 27 of chapter 13. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. Now, I like grapes, but most of them I can, like, manage with a couple of fingers, okay? Somehow, whatever produce was happening in the promised land was so significant that a single cluster of grape needed two men on a pole to carry it, okay? So I'm just picturing the abundance in that, in that narrative, okay? And they brought some pomegranates and some figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the Lord, the fruit of the land, I'm sorry. And they told them, we came to the land of which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So that phrase, milk and honey, is sort of like their language for it is rich, it is fat, and it is good. It is, it is far better than slavery. It is far better than Egypt. It is something we haven't seen before, so let's use this funky sentence to describe it. It's flowing with milk and honey. The richest, sweetest, greatest is in this place. So that was their observation. Proof positive that God had kept the promise, right? So he said, I'm going to give you land, and the land will flow with milk and honey. They come back from the report. What do they say? Yep. It's exactly like God said it would be. It was just like he said. So now picture this, 12 men, 
12 leaders, 12 spies go and come back and report, all right? Let's go on with the story. Pick it up in verse 27. We told him they came to the land which he sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, let me just tell you something. When you're responding to God's command, don't ever say however. Take that out of your vocabulary, but they do. They put it in there. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. That's, in, that's terrifying. First, let's go skip down to chapter 14 for a second. No, I take that back. Let's go back up to, where did I leave off? 29, so 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are, we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against these people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, and they had spied out, saying, the land through which, through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in there are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So, so just stop for a second. I'm not certain these people were related to the Nephilim. Nephilim were considered a giant race of people. Um, you'd have to er- read on earlier in Genesis to get that story. Th- nevertheless, it's not the point. The point is that's how they were describing the massive size of this tribe of Anak. These pe- in fact, the word actually means long neck. It's the only way they could describe, like, they're just up there, man. These people are huge. And so they just looked at the, the, the size and shape of this tribe. And said, there's, just no, there's just no way, man. The giants live in that place. Besides all these other tribes, and it can't happen. Verses 1 and 2. Then all the congregation raised a, a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, (laughs) or that we would have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land so that we'll die by the sword? (laughs) It's so funny to me. We're talking just moments ago, somebody said, milk and honey. Just a second ago, someone said, it's a promise kept by God. Just a couple seconds ago, someone said, exactly like he said, he has, he has delivered milk and honey. But you don't hear that. Like the first narrative that comes out of their mouth is, we're afraid, they're giants, we're gonna die, we blame God. Why did God? Why did God bring us out here to destroy us? Why are we gonna die by the hands of these men? Now let me just tell you something for a second. I know it sounds a little bit schizophrenic, double-minded, um, but I believe both reports were true. And let me explain. Split the 12 between a category of 10 and a category of, of two, Caleb and Joshua. And you're gonna get how both these reports can be true. Two men by faith, Caleb and Joshua, trusted God's promises. They're the ones that came back and said, that's true and we should have it and God will give it. Let's go get it. That's what they said, okay? 10 men trusted themselves and knew they couldn't defeat anybody. And that is true. They couldn't defeat anybody. Both were right. Two men saw God as 
their deliverer. Ten thought they had to deliver themselves. You get the point? Two men were willing to let God use them. Ten men opposed God's will and hindered an entire people group from obedience. Interesting. Two men were rejoicing in what God was giving to them. Ten men complained so much so that ultimately in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, they said, I know what we can do to fix this. Let's just kill Joshua and Caleb. We'll stone him to death. And then we'll be able to stay where we want to stay. That was their solution. Twelve leaders went, only two returned. My guess is that the ten that we're talking about were stars in their world. They're leaders for a reason, right? They were given the job. They were selected by the people. They were sent by Moses. Um, They rose to leadership because of the same reasons why in our culture people rise to leadership. They look the part. They look good. Possibly the prettiest, the fastest, the strongest, the most talented, the smartest. You know, you know how we pick leaders. We look at the outside and we measure what they're made of and how they look and how people respond to how they look. And we go, well, that's a leader. That's how we pick a leader. Which I suppose is a good time to stop and make a point, a side point. Um, that You're not a leader. You're not a leader at all because you've got the job. Because they have the job. You're not a leader because you've fulfilled your assignment because they fulfilled their assignment. You're, you're not a leader because you're able to evaluate uh, an intense situation, because they did. You're not a leader because you can motivate people, because they motivated the entire people of Israel. You're not a leader because you can find a solution. Let's go back to Egypt. You're not a leader for those things. I know that seems to sound like, well, that's the category that you'd work with. The way God sees it is that you're a leader if your faith and your trust in God wills you to obey in spite of all the other limitations. I didn't get a chance to read to you today the story about David when I brought him up. But David is, uh, in his selection as God's king for Israel, there's a wonderful little narrative when Samuel the priest is kind of doing God's bidding, selecting the king. And Samuel sent to Jesse's house. Jesse has eight sons. And God told him, one of those sons is going to be the king. And so Samuel shows up and he sits there and they start trading in the sons, the oldest to the youngest. And the oldest comes through and he goes, well, holy cow, that's got to be the king. Because look at him. He's a stud. God says to Samuel, he's not the guy. And he just keeps going through the sons, all of them, until he gets to, to David. And David is just a young shepherd boy. The only thing it says about him, he's ruddy and handsome and he's been outside and he looks healthy. That's all it says about him. But he was a nobody. And Samuel had to be told by God, I don't look at the outside. I look at what's in the heart. I look at the shape of a man's faith. And so that illustration, we can drag it now into this situation with these these leaders, these 10 leaders. Now, what made Joshua and Caleb different was their willingness to obey. Let me me show you. Go back to the text again. We're going to pick it up in... uh, Let's just pick it up in chapter 14, verse 8. Again, this is, uh, this is Caleb. He's talking. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are our bread for us. I love that, man. Their protection is removed from them. 
and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Next verse. And all the congregation said, let's kill them. One group of people wanted to take matters in their own hands, and there you have Joshua and Caleb saying, let's believe God. Let's just believe God. They're bred to us. These giants are nothing. God's going to do the battle. That was the story. There's a connection to us, I think, today. There's quite a number of you who, if, if I asked you, you would say, I follow Jesus. He's my king. I'm here for that. And you believe God's word and God's promise. And maybe today, maybe more than some other point of your life, you would say, because you're surrounded in this wonderful place by believers and we're having a Bible study for crying out, you would say um, that you want to live for him wholeheartedly, like no looking back. Maybe that would be what you said. And I want you to take a second and soberly look at these 10 leaders. Don't ignore them. Don't just pretend like they're a stepping stone to some other point to make. I want you to stare them down and learn from them because it is so easy and so common to have good reasons why you can't obey God. And you can say, he is your God. They they didn't come back. These spies weren't chosen because they didn't believe God. They they said they did. They were the people of Israel. They witnessed the exodus. They had seen the miracles. They were on the threshold of the land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, that was their report, but they couldn't obey. The world is littered with people who say, I love Jesus, but I got a reason why I can't do what he told me to do. I got several things that are in the way. I've got so many gory stories that I don't want to leave them with you because I think they would illustrate in too much graphic fashion of friends of mine or Christian people, I truly believe, converted people who time and again will make decisions to not trust and and blow their world up. And And the answers and the reasons would be it's just too hard. That's why. I'm all alone. It's not popular. It's expensive. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why we choose even as believers, not to to obey. I know you know what world you're going back to, right? They don't let you go to Lost Canyon and stay. You you don't get to put a mailbox out there and say, hey, we get to stay on retreat for the rest of our life. And we get to sing every day, twice a day, and hang out with each other and throw snowballs and eat really carbonated food. We can do all that all the time. That's not what you get to do. You get to go home. And you know what's at home, don't you? Don't you? You know all the people. You know all the computer stuff. You know all the, all the relationships. You, you know all the stuff. You know all the narratives that are running uh, live at home while we're here at, at this retreat. There will be no surprises for you. I guess the question today is, will you trust God? Will you take a cue from at least the beginning of this narrative? You go, okay, wait a minute. It doesn't seem... Like that's a good idea to question whether God's word is accurate or not or whether I should obey it or not. The God of Joshua and Caleb is the same God that you serve. The exact same God. So what are you afraid of? You might, you might make the wrong conclusion that we're not Joshua and Caleb. These were special people. They had extra measure of whatever God gives to really strong leaders and I don't have that. I'm just average. You would be so wrong. We, we, are, not, we are not told um, 
a ton of narrative about these two men. Um, brave, yes. Uh, warriors, yes. We know, we know those things. But there's many, many years, decades, years of gaps in their storyline. I want to just tell you, these guys are average with exceptional faith. That what makes them special. They were both born slaves just like everybody else. They both had to serve Pharaoh just like everybody else. They had to go through the plagues and believe that God would deliver just like everybody else. They wandered in the desert just like everybody else. They were no different. They both saw the giants just like everybody else. I don't know what their hearts did immediately, but they trusted. So here's the question. Is it possible at all to be like Joshua and Caleb? Am I just kind of preaching a preacher's sermon that's ridiculous and has no connection to reality, is it possible that we could be like these guys? Because the story gets better, by the way. I just want you to know that. Even what we'll read tonight, it gets even more intense. I'll just to tease it up even some more, we are living in a world of epidemic issues, a world that struggles with massive insecurity. Did you know that? Did you know that? A, a, a world that cares so much about pleasing others and having others accept them. And the, and the way it works out, at least in the way I see it, is that people would rather be wrong and sin against God than do it alone. They just, they just want to have people. I'll do whatever it takes as long as I'm not by myself. And so they explain all this behavior because everybody's doing it. And I got my friends. Okay. You would, by the way, just... To make a point, you'd have a hard time finding any place in the scripture whatsoever that the majority of people are right. So if you're following the crowd, you're probably wrong, just to make a point. Um, But God's power in us through the spirit of God has given us the ability to trust and obey in spite of a crowd in, in in the sense of the long haul that Caleb and Joshua are living. And so they're not different than we are. They're sinners who love God, who know what God has said, and are willing to trust God and obey him And here's the kicker line, at all costs. That's just who they are. Let me prove it to you. Chapter 14, 3 through 12. You're going to see this starts poorly and ends well. Um, We're going to see some grumbling first by the people. Why is the Lord, verse 3, bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become their prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That was their plan. That was their best thought after seeing the... Anic people and the, the land, okay? And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Okay? Then the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long am I going to deal with these people? Amazing. So God makes a statement. I want to fast forward here. God makes a statement. I'm done now. I'm getting rid of them. That was his take on this rebellion. Moses then comes in and he intercedes and advocates for Israel and says, wait a minute, God, please don't do that. Please don't wipe them out because you know what the people, you know what the nations will say, right? That you brought them out here to die. 
that you brought them out of Egypt only to fool them and to make a mockery of them. They'll make fun of them and they'll make fun of you. Don't, don't do this. It's not a good idea. And, and so God um, pardoned them um, and, and, and cared for them this way. Look at verses, uh, look at chapter 14, 30 to 35. I know we're skipping ahead. Now, this is God after Moses had made his case for Israel. This is God now saying, well, this is how it's going to go now. Not one, verse 30, shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, no surprise, the son of Jephna, and jo- Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for their faithlessness until the last of the dead bodies lies in the wilderness according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. 40 days a year for each day you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I the Lord have spoken. Surely I will do this. I will do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall come to a full end and they shall die. Thus says the Lord. So that generation that's represented by those 10 leaders who made decisions, who sought everything, were called, all that kind of stuff, God says, okay, I'm, I'm done with them. I'm gonna deal with them. Okay, stop for a second. 40 years, 40 years of marching around inches away from the promise, dying off day by day, an entire unbelieving generation of people. That's what they endured. Let me ask you a question in connection. Speaking of faith and our trust in God in our own, in our own lives, what if the faith decisions that you have already made in your life, or maybe some decisions you are currently making even this weekend as we speak, what, what if they meant that you had to believe God in your relationships and walk away from some. What if? What if this faith in God meant that you had to close some windows on some sin? Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, windows, um, to me, I, I use as a, a, a word picture to describe places and ways that we can conveniently get to our pet sins. You know? It could be on our iPhone, it could be um, at work, it could be at school, whatever. They're just open windows. There's access to rebellion there, and it's convenient, and it's easy, and it's secret. I'm just asking you, what if, what if this faith thing that God's calling you to, he's saying, okay, just leave, leave slavery. Leave it, and I'll give you something good, but you got you to gotta leave it. You got to trust me. What if it meant that? What if it meant that you had to change the way you live your life? Would you do it? Could you do it? That's the question. Let me show you how the story ends. Again, Israel's wandering the desert for 40 years as God kills off a rebellious generation. Now, fast forward Israel now. After it's wandering and after all that punishment, guess where they are? Right at the threshold again. Kadesh Barnea. There's the promised land. Milk and honey. All the great things about it. Now I want you to skip ahead past numbers, Deuteronomy, and get yourself to the book of Joshua and go to the 14th chapter. 
Let me tell you in a quick fashion how this ends um, in a very winsome way, and we'll make some points. When, as a reminder, um, this whole story began, the two spies that I look at, and man, I just, I'm just, my heart's just for them, Joshua and Caleb, they're 40 years old when they spied out the land the first time. They're in the prime, and they come back and say, let's do it, it's ours, God gave it to us. So these two men, in spite of their faithfulness, have to endure 40 years miles away from the promised land. Okay, here's where we pick up the story, verse 6 through 14. That the people of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephna, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, a man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. You get what he's saying here, right? And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. Now listen. I am still as strong today as I was the day that Moses sent me. My strength is now, it is as my strength was then, for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country. Do you remember what's in the hill country? Ain't it? The giants, the baddest of the bad, the places that made everybody's heart melt with fear. This 85-year-old dude goes, give me the giants. I love that. Now give me the hill country for which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how Enochim were there and great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. And so Joshua blessed him and gave him that. Now, how does that happen? Forty years. He's an old man and he still wants it. He still believes it. He still has faith, ridiculous faith. Let me just suggest to you that 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 just doesn't happen that way. How can anyone stay anchored in faith like that? How, How do you finish like Caleb does right there and Joshua? Let me suggest to you that it requires a love for God that supersedes all other loves. Somehow in the scope of how you lay out your life and everyone has the priority structure of our affections, somehow God has to dominate dominate and be above and all in everything. He's got to be number one, but it also requires a trust in God in spite of a lifetime of opposition. Clearly, that's the story here, right? Clearly, Joshua and Caleb had to suffer for the unbelief of others, but they believed nonetheless. How? How did they do it? So if we're going back to that picture, that word picture of the Ebenezer, the stone of remembrance, they did it by remembering all of his goodness, his grace to save I, I can't imagine, it always flabbergasts me every time I read a story of Israel in the Old Testament after they experienced manna raining from heaven, bread, bread fell from heaven because they said they were hungry. And because they complained about bread, God let quail come and they got filled on meat, he just did that. He sent a pillar of fire to protect them. 
He opened up seas to protect them. I mean, miracle after miracle, fire on the mountain, all this stuff. They saw all of it. They were protected. And they still wandered and wondered whether they could survive the giant land. I, I, it, just, it just blows my mind. But how do you do it, church? How do we now in 2018, how do we hang in there and finish like that? How, does, how do we stay anchored in our faith like that? Well, you have to remember the goodness of God to save. You have to remember that his mercies truly are new every morning. He might not stack you up with mercies, like you might not have a, a whole bucket full of mercies to plan out your next hundred years, but he might, he will, he promised to show up every morning and say, here's enough for today. I'll give it to you today. You might think tomorrow will crush you, but he shows up with just enough for today. So I guess this is a perfect time to ask you a real simple question. I'm assuming an answer, so you don't have to say anything if you don't want to. But do you want to finish like Joshua and Caleb? Would you like to? Would you like to be an old duffer and have your faith be an example, like superseding faith over your culture? Well, let me give you a couple thoughts in, in light of that because I saw you nod your head. Here you go. Well, then you better prepare yourself because it takes a lifetime. And nobody prepares himself for that amount of work. It takes a lifetime. Giving your life to Christ in spite of what you may have heard, in spite of how you feel your way through your relationship with God, is not a one-time event. It isn't. It's a daily action. You give your life to Christ every minute of every day. When the temptation comes into you and says, this would be better, this would be greater, this will make you happy, this will satisfy, you give your life to Christ. Every minute of every day, let me give you another thing. If you want to finish well, then you have to understand it's totally worth it. Don't ever question it. When God calls you, do not do math. Don't. Don't count. When God says do it, don't go, hey, how much is this going to hurt? Uh, how much is this going to cost? How old will I be? Who's going to go with me? How happy will my life be? Don't do math when God calls. Just obey. It's totally worth it. Let me tell you what David knew. He knew this. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's what I know. David knew that. How do you finish well? Well, you have to recognize that this whole kind of pursuit goes unrecognized, and, it, and it's okay. You know, it's not like somebody's going to write another version of another story of God's faithfulness, and they're going to put your name in it and say, yeah, when they were eight years old, they did well. It's not going to happen. And I'm certain if Caleb and Joshua were here, they'd say, well, I'm totally shocked that we made the story, to be honest with you. We were just a couple of dudes in, the, in slavery in Egypt, and we just trusted God, and we got the hill country, and we died. Happy men. That was our life. It goes unrecognized to finish well. It's interesting to me that 45-year gap between the first attempt to take the promised land and then when we see in Joshua, Caleb stepping up and go, I'm an old guy, but I want the giants that 40 years, there's nothing really said about their life. So decade three, they get up and they are kind to their children and their wife. They love others. They work. They believe. They worship God. Decades of totally average, nobody cares stuff that God loves 
And that is not sexy in our generation. It is not. Everybody wants to be something. Everyone wants to go somewhere. I want a label. I want to finish. I want a business card. But if I said to you, here's what God will give you. If you put your hands, if you put your life in his hands, he will give you joy, unspeakable joy, and your life will be average and he will be glorified. You'll be a small group leader for 710. You'll be a pastor in a church or you'll be a plumber. You'll be whatever to the glory of God and God will be happy and you will have joy and it will be great and nobody will know. I don't know too many people who sign up for that, but here's the reality. If you want to finish well, you want your name, kind of your, the idea of your life being wrapped up with this kind of story of Caleb and Joshua, then you have to embrace the, the whole role of being living an unrecognized life. Very few, very few people get to be known for anything. And that's okay. Most of the special lives will go unnoticed because what makes them special is living out their average life by faith and an exceptional God. That's what makes it special. One last thing, if you haven't already guessed, if you wanna finish like Joshua and Caleb, then you have to understand and recognize that it's costly. It does cost... Trusting God from here all the way to the end, number one, isn't popular. So that means you're gonna have to go it alone in some arenas. And two, it involves suffering. That's the promise of Jesus to his church. You name me, you have me, well, then the world will reject me in you. Prepare yourself for the cost of that. I um, have said forever about the story. I can't wait till somebody makes a movie. I don't know why anybody hasn't. It's just the greatest setup. I mean, the whole story, you've got... Egypt, and you got Israel, and you got faith, and you got miracles, and you got these old dudes who are so stinking tough in their faith, and they live their whole average life and are stronger at the end. I don't know a lot of people like that. Do you? I don't know a lot of people striving for that, and I know this. If you don't put it on your list to do, it probably won't happen. So I put that out there, sort of like motivation. The first time I heard this, I went, I want to be that. I'd love to be that. What do I have to do to be that? And by God's grace, maybe, I want you to be that. I really do. Get your arms, your mind, your affections around trusting God, the goodness of God and whatever he provides for you. I promise you, you're gonna be an old person. You'll be an old person having an impact. And nobody will really know except for your circle. And then they'll tell your story. My grandmother, my grandfather, my dad, my mom. And then there are the stories just start rolling off their lips. You gotta prepare for that, yeah? Let's pray. God, to me, the story is so encouraging, so motivational, um, that in, um, in trusting you, there is joy. You have made promises to... Uh, love us and hold on to us. You have promised us a life full of purpose in loving others like we've been loved. And sometimes we get our minds focused on so many other options that we neglect the only real option that matters. So God, would you do a special thing for us? Would you make us a generation of people who, who really is known for how we finish and not just how we start? God, that will happen if we believe you um, in spite of everything else.
So we know that requires the Spirit. It requires the work of grace that you do every day. So we're going to wake up tomorrow, and we're going to believe your mercies are for us. We say thank you in Jesus' name.